HIV is still an issue in Montgomery County. The more open we're able to talk about HIV, we treat it like any other health prevention. PrEP stands for pre-exposure prophylaxis. People who are not HIV positive, who may be at high risk for contracting the disease. This is a good choice for you. It's just a way for you to sort of take control and say, I'm going to do this to protect myself. Do it for them. Do it for you, Montgomery County. Learn more about PrEP, the HIV prevention medication. Visit doitforyoumc.org. So Luther, I think, gave us the formula for how to handle these things. It's to stand on Scripture alone and let the chips fall where they may. We're on the we're on the same side. We may disagree on, on certain theological issues, yeah, but, I, but I, we're I, on the I, same I, side. No, not at all. And, and look how nice we are to each other. No, I enjoy this and uh, appreciate all you do out there for the Lord. Yeah. It's like you know what? What are you doing? You're spending all your time trying to destroy another Christian because you don't understand what's going on. When you should be out there winning people for Jesus. Uh, we're not supposed to be lion sheep. We're supposed to be brands. And so just to, no matter who it is, this goes for everybody. Um, you're, I'm a, I'm a big fan of yours. I'm a big fan. <laughs> it, it's, it's true. I, I love watching you and I love hearing what you have to say. And I think you're a, a great blessing to the body of Christ. Welcome to this week's episode of Conversations with Jeff. I'm really excited for our guest that we have this week, which is Patrick Wyatt, who's the co-host of the Shining Light podcast that we host here on the GK Podcast Network. Welcome, Patrick. I'm glad we could sit down. Oh, nice being here. I've been looking forward to this ever since we talked about this uh, occurring, so... Yeah, this is good. Yeah, definitely. And you know, and I'm I'm really excited too that you're you're involved with a project that we're working on with social injustice and you know, you're tackling uh systemic oppression, if I'm remembering yes. correctly. I'm trying to keep track of everybody's chapters as I, as they're coming in and stuff. <laughs> but, yeah, that would be me. <laughs> yeah. But I'm 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 really glad to have you involved just because I know like on your podcast like you're a, a wealth of information and I feel like I'm always learning something something new from you every time I listen every week, so well, praise God. He, he kind of gives us the words. We don't know too much without him and everything we do, Sam and I. Uh, we want to glorify him, speak the truth, so uh, and let him speak through us. So Yeah, definitely. That- so so I want to start out and just give you a chance to share your testimony, like how God's been working in your life, how he saved you, and, and just that sort of thing. And that way people can kind of get to know you and get to know your background and that sort of thing. Okay. Well, I was I was raised in a family going to church, so that's good. And, and uh, the good thing about that, of course, is my parents didn't send me to church. They took me to church. And that's a big distinction people uh, need to understand. I mean, it's, it's great you want your children to go to church, but they're looking at your parents and saying, well, if church is such a good thing for me, how come mom and dad, you're not going to church? So my parents took me to church, so I had that background growing up. But, of course, you always have that point of decision, uh, whatever your background is. And once you're aware of the gospel of Jesus Christ, what he did for you, that we're all sinners, deserving of separation from God. But instead of that, God sent his son to offer himself to sacrifice and atone for our sins. So that's that's pretty powerful as a kid or a young teenager. And that's when I made the decision was, uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna follow Christ. So, but I didn't realize that you know that I thought maybe that was about the end of the road. You know, I got my get out of hell free card, so I'm pretty much you know go to church, 
And then the rest of the week, I can kind of seek my own ambitions, you know, stay within the moral codes. But I lived like that for years because I didn't understand that there's a sanctification process, that we're to be more and more like Christ. We're to give our lives to him more fully, to read the Bible and to pray and understand these things and grow and mature uh, spiritually just like we do physically in life, just like we do mentally. So that was a process of time. And and I lament years where I uh, uh, spent a lot of time playing softball, shall we say, Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, you know, eating, working, playing softball. And uh, it, it came to me finally. The Lord kept working with me. Um, you know, you need to give your life over to him. And, and you have enough. If doing your own thing in your life, you have enough of, of crashes and, and train derailments, figuring out, you know, my way is not the best way. God has a plan for me. And uh, the sooner you get to that plan, turn your life over to God and actually start seeking that plan, his will for your life, the better you're going to be and the less scars and knots you're going to have on your head in life, less regrets you're going to have to think about. So, um Came back from Kuwait in 2000 and late 2011. Did some contract work overseas over there. And uh, I, I always liked writing. You know, I thought, well, I'd like to be a writer someday. And my, my first love was comic books. So <laughs> I was doing that and uh, kind of sent some stuff in. Uh, got to know the editor-in-chief of Marvel Comics and was on the cusp of selling stories to those guys. Um, he'd sit down with me, kind of critique my some stuff at one of the big conventions. And anyway, so um, I kind of lost interest at that point. I mean, I was ready to do something different, which is interesting. I'm glad God moved me on so I didn't get involved in that. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, anyway, I, that was when I was younger. I get back from Kuwait. I start, you know, there's things going on. There's things I've learned in life. I thought, well, you know, I'd like to write this down. Start writing for Rapture Ready, if you're familiar with, with that site. I've, I've heard the name. I haven't really followed a whole lot, but I've, I'm familiar with them, yeah. Okay. So so I started writing, submitting stuff there, and kind of Start getting stuff out that way, and other sites would pick up my articles. And so I, I was able to have that outlet, which, you know, you have a sense of um, uh, doing what you, you should be doing. You, you know, you're not just wasting your time. So right. um, I was sending that out and, and getting response, of course. You like to hear what people have to say, good, bad, or indifferent. So I was doing that, and then uh, I was going to church, uh, went, was moved to Iowa, um, and uh, we were kind of looked around for churches, tried different churches, found a church, uh, a fairly big church. We'd heard some good things about it. So we went in there, and, uh, you know, it was one of your modern churches. I, I hadn't been to a church like that before where a pastor kind of dresses down. Mm-hmm. I more traditional church, the suits and all that sort of thing. Right. So I'm trying to get used to it, and, then, you know, they got this band playing uh, in, before the actual sermon, and, uh, boy, they're talented. I wasn't quite used to that either. But, you know, I'll make some leeway here. I'll, I'll try to, you know, go with the flow, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and the people were friendly, got uh, hooked up with a small connection group, or small group they call it, connection group, and uh, nice people there, so we enjoyed that every week, my wife and I, and then uh, we're going to church, And but you know, even through that, it felt like something was just a little off, and I said to my wife, I said, there, there's something off, and she goes, well, what is it? I go, I don't know, I can't put my finger on it, but I'll tell you when I, when I find out, when I figure it out. Mm-hmm. Well, um, it kind of came to a head. I, I talked about social justice. And I knew about Marxism and some different things, the cultural Marxist stuff. I'd written about some of these things, not not as the main course of an article, but within an article. Well, you're going to church, and all of a sudden, out of the pulpit at my church, a social justice sermon comes out. And that's that moment where you, your eyes open, your mouth drops open, you go, I knew it was elsewhere, but now it's in my church. Yep. So um, after some... Prayer and uh, soul searching, 
And, well, originally we did that, prayer and soul searching, took this issue to the pastor and the elder team. And we thought, well, you know, I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt. You just don't know any better. You don't know where cultural Marxism, where the social justice comes from. You don't know the back. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I didn't interpret any sinister motives. There were several people in church that saw the same thing I did. So three of us took this to the pastor and the elder that had preached the sermon and to the elder war. And at first, you know, I was like, well, they just don't know. And I said, you know, I, I don't know a lot, a whole bunch of stuff, but the stuff I do know, I know pretty well because I've actually spent years researching this stuff. I thought I knew social justice pretty well. Yeah. You know, she really did, <laughs> you know, a few years past. But um, so ultimately it turned out that they were kind of followers of Russell Moore. And uh, it wasn't about social justice so much as it was now defending this guy that they trusted, this guy they looked up to, Russell Moore. Mm-hmm. Well, um, that ended my time there. They, they wanted me to be a connection group leader. And at that point, I'm going, they're going, well, we need to kind of back off on that. And I'm going, yeah, I, I realize that I need to find another church. So um, that's what we did. We prayed, left that church. And then we um, uh, were looking around for a church. And we were checking online. You know, the great thing about technology is you can check out sermons. You can look at what the church stands for. So we did that. And you're finding churches you're just not going to agree with. And you find out pretty quick there's not a whole lot of rock-solid churches, at least in our area. Mm -hmm. Right. So I saw this guy named Sam Jones doing a sermon. And I'm a patriotic guy, and I was watching Sam's sermon. And he said something that kind of caught my ear. He said, sometimes I fear that people are more American than they are Christian. And I'm going, okay. That's nuance. I mean, I could tell from the sermon he wasn't saying that in what we would call a liberal way. Right. He was saying it in a thoughtful way. I said, well, that he understands that. I need to go out and hear this guy. I mean, I need to see him in person. Mm-hmm. We show up to church there and listen to a sermon. And uh, I don't know if Sam told you this. You know, we're talking afterwards. He goes, so where did you guys come to, uh, from as far as church? And I told him the name of the church. And uh, it was a big church. And he's, mm-hmm. he's Told me later, he goes, I looked at my wife and go, they're, they're never coming back here. You know, <laughs> you know, all this stuff going on. We sing hymns and do all that story. Little did he know. So uh, the next week, I, my uh, uh, uncle had passed away in Missouri. That's where I'm from originally. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so we went down there and um, my family had asked me to do the funeral, which I was honored to do. So I did that. So I wasn't at church the next Sunday. So Sam's con- uh, suspicions were probably confirmed I wasn't coming back. But the next week I did. Yeah. So Came back and got to know Sam and his wife, Sarah. Um, we started talking about different things and found out that we were really lined up on some things as far as what was going on. Sam was seeing it in the world, and I've certainly been seeing it. So uh, God brought us together, and um, like I said, we started talking about, well, you know, someday we need to do a podcast, and uh, that just took off. We had no expectations for the podcast. Um, we just thought it needed to be done, and, and when the Lord's in it, then he'll spread it. I mean, if, if he wants you to do something, you don't worry about all the details of it. You do what you're tasked to do, and he'll take care of how he's going to use it and be content with that. So that's been our uh, motto, and I think it's been working out for us pretty well. Well, we get to meet you, so yeah. something's Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, you know, like the, the fun thing is, is is going back and even like hearing some of you guys' stuff from the, like, the very beginning is still like very relevant with everything that we're seeing happening in the church you know, because yeah. you guys were talking about this stuff, like, was it right around or even before, like, the Dallas Statement and, you know, all that kind of stuff coming around? And, to a, I mean, to a certain degree, I mean, clearly you and you and Sam understand the threat. You guys understand what's going on. You understand how this is compromising the gospel and that sort of thing. Whereas a lot of these guys that are trying to jump in and tackle this issue 
to a certain degree, you almost think they're kind of in over their heads a little bit. They don't even understand the 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 and to be able to grasp a lot of this kind of stuff. So I, I think again, like I I feel like I just keep saying over and over it. The more education people can have, the better. And I feel like you and Sam do a, do a great job with just tackling a lot of these issues and making it simple for people to understand. And praise God that we're able to do that. But you see these things going on, and you realize when you look at the history of these things that liberalism or evil or however you want to describe that term, that force, um, continues to move forward. It doesn't stop on its own accord. It has an agenda, and it moves forward piece by piece. I mean, Satan's a great field general. He attacks from multiple directions. He never gives up. He has now the media, a good portion of our uh, population, certainly the education system, and he's been pounding away at this this sort of thing with these uh, tools for years and actually going back a hundred years if you want to go back and look at some stuff even before that going back in the 1800s you want to go back to the enlightenment look at that where some of this actual the questioning of his scripture uh, true or not i mean in modern times that's where it kind of goes back to and you just move forward and you start seeing how it passes from person to person group to group idea how it migrates from one area of the world into other areas of the world and continues to pound and pound and pound and people um I mean, we're the end result of it. We're the end of the line right now. The people alive right now don't realize the struggles that took place earlier. Mm-hmm. But we've been indoctrinated. I mean, we've never, we've always been under this attack. But it, it's what society says is okay or right. And we live in society, let's face it. So we don't, you know, from that point of view, know much better. If you go to a church today, it talks about it. I praise God you do. But if you don't, uh, you're not even getting any truth. I mean, you're even getting the same stuff from the pulpit regurgitated now with a Christian form to it that the world's telling you. So you get kids come and say in a, in a, in a college ministry into church, and they're talking about, well, I mean, my Marxist professor talks about social justice. And you come to church, and a guy in the pulpit's talking about social justice in a good way. Mm-hmm. I, I guess that Karl Marx guy must have been right. I mean, even my pastor, Karl Marx was an atheist. Yeah. Even my pastor's talking this stuff. Does the pastor know? Maybe he does. Maybe he doesn't. But whether he does or doesn't, he's talking in Karl Marx's voice, so to speak. Right. Well, you know, like like that that's the kind of the weird thing about how all of this has been coming into the church has really been through the education system and through the seminaries and that sort of thing. I feel like the way the way that it's portrayed, at least in public, is kind of like that it's it's like an organic thing that people are just kind of coming to the realization, but it's almost like it just seems like it's so systematic. That it seems like it's like a plan and laid out. I mean, do you, what, what, what's your take on that? Well, the, the communists and the Marxists, if you want to call them that, they knew from the get-go that starting out to, to conquer America, if you will, they had limited resources over here. So what's the best way to utilize our resources? Well, obviously, if we can hook into the education system, we can rapidly multiply our numbers if we can put people in these positions to be teaching people. And that started working out real well when the Rand School was established here by the Fabian Socialist Society around 1905. So they established a beachhead here in America, the the Fabian Socialist Society. You know, Fabian Socialist, General Fabian, was waging his war, trying to grind his enemies down by attrition. He didn't have superior numbers, but he was relentless, setting little fires here, little fires there, just wearing them out. And so that's where the Fabian Socialist Society in England took their name Fabian from, was General Fabian. So they wanted to bring this, this new Marxism to America, uh, which would later would be known as cultural Marxism. So they infiltrated the, the, the schools of higher education, and he started getting professors teaching this stuff. Well, that has a geometric effect. You start t- 
teaching kids this, these kids go on to become further academics or in a different place in society. So you've seeded it pretty well. You also get into media, which they did, but you, you said a key thing. Ultimately, the goal in Satan's mind is getting rid of the church in America. That's the moral glue and the fiber that makes us a great nation is our faith. So we want to attack the faith. Again, now we start seeding some of our leaders into the seminaries, uh, places like Union Theological Seminary, Rochester Seminary, where, where uh, Walter Rauschenbusch went to school. These became beachheads, and they spread out in other places. Harvard Divinity School has just been rife with these sorts of, of people. Now, no, out in your neck of the woods, you have Fuller Theological Seminary that's, mm-hmm. that's turned on some pretty big names that people recognize, and uh, very liberal, very worldly in what they put forth. And, and people assume a seminary is a place where they're going to learn about the Bible and, and the history of the Bible and Christian things. A lot of people don't realize that many seminaries have been corrupted and taken over by this cultural Marxist liberal mindset, modernist movement, Walter, or Harry Emerson Fosdick in the 20s, with Rockefeller money. You know, And there's always money behind this stuff, and today that's certainly the case. There's lots of money out there pushing that side of things. Yeah, well, what's inter- really interesting is that you know uh, I was talking with a guy, an older general, an older gentleman, several years ago, I think it is now, and he actually knew Charles Fuller before I think he even started the seminary, and okay. and he and he was in the, again. This is before all this social justice stuff became like aware, at least to me, to a certain degree. And he was kind of bragging about how it's um, you know one of Fuller's focuses was on you know, uh, ecumenism and bringing these different religions together and cross religious studies and like all this kind of stuff. And I remember even then I'm like, red flag, red flag, red flag. And then you start, and then now you're, I'm looking back and it's like, look at all these names that are coming out of here. No wonder these are the guys that are promoting interfaith dialogue. No wonder these, these are the guys that are pushing all these ideologies. And then you look at the, the issue with, what was it like one of the organizations on interfaith dialogue was like co-founded or co-sponsored by Fuller Seminary. And it's like, yeah. of, of course there's, this is why Rick Warren and James White and all these guys are pushing IFDs because look at where they came from. Yeah, that's exactly how they've been programmed. And also because there's money pushing it back in the day, you know, you talk about the ecumenical movement, the, the money of John D Rockefeller Jr., the vast Rockefeller portion. And he was an ecumenical guy, mm-hmm. Protestant, liberal is what he claimed to be. His idea was to take his money and support people like Harry Emerson Fosdick and this liberal movement that became known as a modernist movement and make that mainstream in Christianity, which is exactly what happened. That's what, what he did. And that money continues to push today. And you do have people like that. And and when you see Rick Warren and and these guys from, from Fuller and the not only is it just interfaith dialogue, but also the emergent church, some of those leaders have also came through Fuller. Not saying Fuller is exclusively, you know, cranking these guys out. Fuller is one of the main uh, resources that cranks these guys out. There's several seminaries that do. In fact, a lot of them do. But, yeah, that's that's what they push. I mean, it's been the push for a while. And we know ultimately where combining all religions goes, right? We know about Revelation chapter 13 and the one world government, the one world religion. So, um this is the logistics of that that we're seeing and have been seeing. Yeah. Well, you know, really what's interesting, and I think I forget which podcast. I was talking to somebody about this, but I keep expounding on this in my mind is when you look at history, you all, you saw, you used to see a strategy where I think Satan was using actual empires to try to conquer the world. So you saw like mm-hmm. the Babylonian Empire, the Roman Empire, like all these different empires, and they would try to literally just take over the world. A lot of them would get really close, and then I, but I feel like God would always say, "Okay, we're not quite there yet," and then yeah. they would they would implode, 
and then they move on to the next one, you know, even Great Britain, you know, whatever it is, right? But I feel like this is the first time where they're like, it's a new strategy. It's no longer just, okay, we're going to have one nation that's going to conquer everybody to, to establish the one world government. Now it's, we're going to do it from within, which seems like a completely different strategy. And they've been quite successful. And so I'm wondering if you know, we're almost getting to that point of no return, I almost feel like, where it's either God's going to say, okay, we're, we're, it's not time yet, we're going to implode, or it's, okay, it's time. <laughs> yeah, and you know, the interesting thing about that is earlier even, the technology wasn't in place to actually reach people on an individual basis or mass reach people. I mean, we're the technology wasn't in place for us to do what we're doing right now, you in California, me sitting in Iowa. Right. Um, so Satan has really utilized technology now, mass communications and the education system, mass brainwashing, if you will. And, and of course, with, with the new technology comes all these distractions, right? So I can go to the movie. I can do multiple things. I can play video games. There's all these things now available to me, and especially in our country, the ease and the leisure time we have. So we're distracted away from that old Bible, you know. Um, well, I sure wish I could read my Bible. I just don't have time. Well, you look at their time while you're watching TV, there's movies, you got concerts you're going to and conferences. Satan is well aware if he can keep us distracted with worldly things, we won't have the time to read our Bible. We won't be praying and we'll be drifting from God. Even those that are saved will have an unfruitful relationship with God because they're too self-centered in what they're doing. They stay baby Christians. Mm hmm. Yeah. Now, now I kind of wanted to, you know, get a little bit into your specific chapter and the, the topic that you're that you're covering with the book Social Injustice, which is systemic oppression. Um, and I feel like that's, you know, it's one of those things. It encompasses a lot of different topics all within one, but it's kind of this general idea. If you can kind of explain what we're talking about when we're saying that there's a problem with systemic oppression, or at least that that idea of it. Well, Karl Marx, it was foundational. Karl Marx and Frederick Engels published the Communist Manifesto in 1848. So here, here was Marx taking a couple of other theories, one called um, uh, the Hegelian, from Hegel, the, the Hegelian dialectic. So it's, it's the idea that societies move forward by the status quo being um, confronted with differing ideas. Those two ideas come together. There's some sort of synthesis. Now society moves forward. Well, Marx took that as saying, okay, here's the status quo. This is the society we want to overthrow. We're going to hit it with our opposing ideas, smash them together, wait for people to call, cry out for a solution. We already have the solution, but we're going to wait for them to cry out for a solution because of the conflict we've created, the problem that we've pointed out to people. And then we'll give them our solution. So you have the, the status quo is the uh, thesis. You have the uh, opposing idea, the you call it antithesis or antithesis, and then you have that uh, synthesis of, of the two coming together, which they have for us. So Marx saw that, and that's what he did with that. He weaponized that. Now, foundational Karl Marx's theory, because he was seeking political power, was to convince people that they were getting the shaft somehow. So society, the world was, was divided into two different groups by Marx's uh, reckoning. You have the oppressors, and you have the oppressed. That's the only two peoples. So if you work for somebody, you're being oppressed by the person over you because naturally they're greedy and they want to hold power and hold you down. So he thought it was a zero-sum game. There's only a certain amount of pie in the world. They want to keep most of the pie for themselves. They're feeding you just enough to keep you going so you can keep working for them as slaves. So obviously in that system of thought, it can't be just I'm being oppressed by individuals, my neighbors. It has to be a system, a government that's oppressing me, a, a, an economic system such as capitalism that I'm being uh, exploited by and I'm being oppressed by. So systemic 
is a word meaning part of a system, you know, completely within the system. A portion separate from the system, but it kind of goes throughout the system, whatever system we're talking about. With Marx, he'd be talking about in systemic oppression, or the Marxists would say systemic oppression, is government, one, but society, and particularly Western civilization, which we're a part of. Western civilization was the enemy, which is founded on Judeo-Christian values. We have to convince people that that system, in and of itself, economically exploits you. This is cultural Marxism now. Religiously, it, it lays the groundwork for your exploitation. Anybody outside of the norm, and they consider the norm as, say, Christian, white, heterosexual male. These are the enemies. Everybody else is not that, so you fall into subcategories or groups. If you're female, you're obviously not a male. If you're not white, then there you go. Um, all these groups now, if we can get these groups to think that they're oppressed, no matter how well they have it. Now, here's the challenge. In America, we have it pretty good. A high standard of living, lots of freedom to do a lot of different things. We take for granted what a lot of people in the world don't have and wish they did. I've, I've been to other places. I'm telling you, people wish they could at least be poor in our country, which would be a much higher standard of living than where they are. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, But as long as we can convince you, no matter how good things are, that you're oppressed, and we can get you angry about it, and we can get you to move, well, we have the common enemy, and I just told you who they were. So the ultimate idea is to collapse our system of government in this country and to bring in what they're thinking is a more fair and just system. What they don't understand with Marxists and liberals in general and totalitarians is they will tell you anything they can to get you to bite into the lie. They'll feign compassion for the poor and downtrodden. They care no more about the poor and downtrodden than Satan himself does. It's all a ploy to get you to buy. And once you buy, is you've heard of, Alex, no doubt, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. You probably read his stuff. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So he, he details pretty well how the Russian people fell for the similar uh, cries by, by Lenin and Trotsky and the, and the communist movement in Russia and how we were, they were promised their standard of living would be raised and everybody it would be more evenly distributed and everybody would be happy. Well, when the people helped overthrow the czarist government at the time, then uh, they found out what real communism was like. So at that point, communism was just theory. Well, now it was reality. And the reality was that they'd been lied to. And when the people presented, we tried to go to Lenin, even carrying his pictures, as Solzhenitsyn was talking about, carrying the pictures of Lenin, saying, hey, we, we want to talk about what you said you was going to do for us. He said they were met with tank and machine gun fire. So once the totalitarians take over, it's no need to keep up the pretense and the lies. And that's what history continues now with Marxism to repeat itself is once they get in power, uh, you don't matter anymore. In fact, a lot of the people that would help with the revolution, they just assume have you dig a ditch and then kneel down and put a bullet in the back of your head as anybody else. Anybody that gets in the way is is uh, the enemy. Yeah, yeah, and you know, and I I kind of want to get into some you know specifics within this idea of systemic oppression. But the one thing that I did want to get into first was like you're saying things like like they and the people you know basically that are kind of pulling the strings and doing things like that. Like is is this in your opinion, is this a movement that is trying to establish just a system because because they believe in the system? Or is this people that are trying to get power and they're just using the church and using these ideologies to get themselves in power, if that makes sense? No, that makes perfect sense. So, yeah, the, the leaders of this movement know exactly what they're doing, and they manipulate people. Che Guevara did this in South America. Castro did this in Cuba. You have several people that have, have gone this route. So they're the ones that actually know what's going on. They're the true believers. But they have a lot of people that follow them because they bite into the lie. They, they believe in the lie. They, they believe so much in a lie 
they're willing to risk whatever to see this thing come to fruition. So there's a lot of misled people that just don't know any better. But at the top, they definitely do know better. And of course, Satan, again, is the master behind all this stuff. His goal is the destruction of Christianity. If you can obliterate Christianity from a society, especially one like ours, that society falls. It ceases to be who we were. And you can then mold it and do whatever you want to with it. So that's the real uh, goal is to get rid of Christianity, get rid of this nation, get rid of our heritage. And most of society is not Christian anymore. But there's a remnant of us. And, we're, you know, and people like you and I are, are, are vocal about it. So mm-hmm. we're troublemakers because not because of what we can physically do, because our words might stir people's hearts and might cause them to start thinking and our cause starts to grow, our cause of restoration, restoring who we once were as a nation. Um, and, and one of the common things about totalitarians, they do not like to sin. Yeah. They like to be talked up to. So um, the fact that we do, we're an annoyance. And annoyances under their system get stamped out. So systemic oppression manifests itself in different ways. They, they talk about um, racism. So if you're not white, you're being oppressed due to the color of your skin or where you're from. Um, if you are outside of, of norms, societal norms um, in your sexuality, then you have been oppressed up to this point by a society that said this is wrong. Not understanding that society has a, a an obligation to make laws, moral laws, to set the standards of their society. You know, you've heard, well, you can't legislate morality. Mm-hmm. That we won't legislate morality. The question is whose? Right. Right. Well, you know, and, and, that, and that's the thing. And I think that that kind of leads into a a conversation, even in the sense of like how Christians should be, you know, voting and deciding how to be engaged with in the political system as well. When you're talking about legislating morality or not, because I feel like I end up kind of going back and forth between the libertarian side, which is like freedom and let you know people decide what they want to do from a moral standpoint or not. And then going back over to the other side of conservatism, which, which is, you know, basically voting in our morals and, you know, that sort of thing. Like what, what's your take on how Christians should be involved from the political standpoint in the sense of like legislating morality or not and that sort of thing? Well, as a Christian, I, I believe we're certainly obligated to put our views forth and to vote for people that share them. Um, the libertarian minded folks or the liberals have the same opportunity. And I think that's a great thing. Let the, the uh, vote decide on where we're going to go as a society. Now, understand, um, God only lets this go so long. In Sodom and Gomorrah, I don't know how that system actually evolved, but there comes a time when you rebel against God enough that his judgment comes down on you. But we understand that the most of society doesn't. They don't even believe in God, or a lot of society doesn't. Now, 70% of the, the, the church says they, or 70% of our society says they're Christians, but only about 10% of them have an actual Christian worldview. Mm-hmm. So where you fall in there, um, I believe, I advocate for what I believe to the best I can, and we should vote and we should work in that arena. Um, everybody should. Unfortunately, the largest segment of our population is apathy. They're willing to go along with whatever those of us that decide to be involved decide, and they don't really care much, you know, as long as the TV's on, pizza's still being delivered and that sort of thing, the beer's still cold at, at, at the 7-Eleven or wherever they're buying it, then they're okay with things. Those that actually do care and, and see things and, and move in a direction they don't like, they should be involved. So um, my encouragement is get out there and do it. Christians, we're obligated to do it. We have a society and a system of governance that prior to our recent times, the world had never known. We were not allowed to take part in government. Our opinion didn't matter. We had dictators known as kings in most instances deciding what we were going to do and, and how our lives were going to be led or ended. And God blessed us after the Revolutionary War with a nation and, and people with a Christian vision 
to say we need to be participatory in government and we need to keep, like John Jay said, we need to prefer and vote for Christians. That's what our first Supreme Court justice said. And they were looking at keeping the heritage and vision of the founders alive and knowing that that would be the greatest foundation to, to build a nation on. Um, it was a Christian faith. Even those people like um, Thomas Jefferson and, and Ben Franklin, who weren't what we would call Christian or even saved, um, they did believe in aspects of the Bible. Um, Franklin believed the God of the Bible. He just didn't believe Jesus was the, the, the Savior. But even they believed that the Christian faith was the best way to, to found a society and the best um, set of morals to base our laws on. So yeah. I'm not going to argue with those guys on that point. And John Adams said that our, our nation, our constitution is written for religious moral people, and it was wholly inadequate for the governance of any other. Now, that's not been prophetic as we look from where we were to where we've come to. Well, that, Adams hit it right on the head. Yeah, no, that that's very true. Now, kind of getting back to the whole systemic oppression side of things, and I feel like one one of the biggest arguments that's made in regards to this argument really is the, this idea of systemic racism. And you know, and it's kind of funny. I went to I went to a show that uh, that Dave Rubin did out out here in Irvine, California, a few months ago. And one of, and one of his things was that was like a comedy show. But one of his things was let's figure out who's the most oppressed person in the room. So it's basically people competing to see you know where they are on the totem pole. And it was it was actually pretty pretty entertaining. But the thing but the thing is is that that's basically what it comes down to is people are competing to be the most oppressed person based off of their race, their gender, their orientation, their whatever it is. So when we're dealing with systemic racism and somebody comes to you and they say, we live in a, in a systemically racist country, what's your response to that? I've actually had that before. And I've had people say, well, you know, that America is, you know, a racist country and all that. And I say, I look at it historically, I say, well, prior to the United States of America, slavery had been taking place all over the world. In every society, in every continent, with every people, people within your own races, let's say black, people in Africa were enslaving other black Africans. And even when the Muslims moved in and that started the Muslim slave trade, um, you have Muslim slavers there. You had Africans catching Africans and selling them to the slavers just as they were, you know, like that's a rival tribe. We're going to go take those guys. We're going to sell them to the slavers and send them over to America, say. So we had that going on. America, the Judeo-Christian uh, country that we are, and we being the pinnacle of Judeo-Christian civilization, we're the ones that put an end to that. The Revolutionary War, slavery ceased, which had come over with the, the British colonies. You know, that was part of Europe, obviously. It ceased in, in a good portion of the colonies. It still remained in the southern colonies. It took another 83 years. We formed abolition societies to get rid of racism. So um, we as a society... We saw that evil for what it was, and we, we took care of it at the cost of blood. I mean, the slaves that were freed in this country weren't didn't free themselves from a massive slave uprising. 360,000 Union troops died in that war, white guys for the most part, some blacks too. Mm -hmm. um, there were blacks fighting on the side of the Confederacy. So um, I just look at it that way. But, yeah, to say we're systemically oppressed, I've had people bring that up before, like even today. Like, yeah, I, I, back in the day, if you want to look at it politically, the Democrat Party, the Party of Slavery, the Party of the Ku Klux Klan, the Party of the Jim Crow Laws, the party that fought the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and even with their welfare strategy, to they aim that specifically at black families to try to break them. So if we can't keep you at least dependent and enslaved physically, we're going to keep you enslaved mentally and also dependent on government, and we can build a bloating block to, block to support us. So I saw that, too. But here's a question I ask people. 
if, if America is such a terribly racist place, why are people all over the globe trying every which way they can, legal and illegal, to come here? And if there's a better place in the world for anybody of any other particular skin color or belief system, we have enough money. Why aren't you there? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, but, yeah. but 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 I think I think one of the things that I've heard, you know, because especially living out here in California, we we got a we got a lot of lefties out here. Yeah, um, I kind of heard that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But but you know one of the things that that they'll, they'll even do is like they'll say that it's it's subconscious like you don't even realize that you're racist and yeah. and literally like they'll, they'll take they'll take certain things whether it's so and so got pulled over by the police well he probably wouldn't have been if he had been a different skin color or so and so was was carded when they were checking out for booze whereas the white person wouldn't get carded it's it's just this really weird idea of you're racist if you're white, even if you don't realize it. Like, how do, how do we as Christians even respond to that kind of a thing? You know, the first thing I think, and I've, I've said this before in an article I wrote, is the most dangerous racist to you, whatever your skin color is, is the one you harbor in your heart. And that's the only one you can take care of. Cleanse yourself of that one, and then the world's going to be a better place. You can't bludgeon or bully people in, in, into submission right it doesn't work very well you get pushback so are there racists out there there's racists out there of every color and stripe yes there are there's people that don't like me because of my skin color there's nothing i can do about that except for to be kind to everybody and see everybody the same you know you say well i'm colorblind well what does that mean well yes i can see that you may have a different skin color than me but i don't treat you any different for it your attitude towards me you know if you don't like me i'm going to pick up on that but I'm not going to hold anything against you because I want to find out who you are because I've had lots of friends of all different skin colors, some really good friends. And I don't want to cut anybody out of that possibility. And if you don't like me, that's, I mean, um, I wish that weren't the case, but I'm not going to lose a lot of sleep on that either. You know, that's, that's just the way it is. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I understand like they'll say, well, in certain areas, um, let's say if you're black, you're going to be picked up or you're going to be checked out or whatever. Well, police, if they get a, a, a description of a vehicle and a suspect and your vehicle and your description personally fits it, guess what they're going to do? They're going to pull you over and check it out. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's just what it is. There's also crime statistics. If you want to go to the FBI's crime statistic page and look at a break, and they do a breakdown by, by races and that sort of thing, who commits crimes and, and, and what percentage of crimes they commit, that information is available to you. You also look at certain sectors of a town that has crime rates, and you can say, well, most of the crimes, like in Chicago, it doesn't uniformly happen all across Chicago. It happens in certain neighborhoods. Now, and a lot of the victims, of course, are black, and the perpetrators are black. Let's just be honest about it. Okay, So that's not the white man sneaking in and shooting people and trying to frame anybody. That's people, and, and the real problem here is the subculture, I believe, it's called black culture. You know, And uh, I understand where it comes from because there's black there was a time in this nation, especially after the Civil War, where there was a lot of uh, hatred in some sectors against black people. They didn't like the idea that they were freed, and they were precluded from joining society. They were not allowed to assimilate, to assimilate I should say. And uh, so they developed their own culture, and I understand that. I, I get where they're coming from. And even, I mean, going back even a few decades ago, um, things in some areas were, were not what they should be. Today, I think, finally, we've got to a point, or at least we were at a point, where a lot of people don't judge you based on the color of your skin. They want to find out who you are. 
And uh, the unfortunate thing is uh, we got racism kind of stirred up again with the Obama administration, kind of set it back, getting people like convinced again that you're being systemically oppressed because of the color of your skin. Now, there are people who have been oppressed, you know. I, I've been done wrong by people of all colors, predominantly more white people than anybody because obviously that's more of my neighbors and that sort of thing. Right. But like I said, also I have dear friends that are black and Hispanic and different things like that, so I don't care. I look at you as a person, as Martin Luther King would say, the content of your character rather than the color of your skin. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it's a good conversation to have. But to say that you subconsciously, because you're white, automatically look down on me is garbage. How do you know what's in my mind? Subconsciously, really? I'm unaware that I'm a racist? Really? And you know what? People people have a choice, And, and no matter how odious that choice is, it's still their choice. We can't beat people up. There's Klansmen, yes. Are they? No, I'm not a Klansman. I don't advocate for those people or anything like that. But it is their choice to make. As long as they're not breaking any laws, same with anybody that's, that's racist. As long as you're not breaking any laws, you can't physically hurt somebody. Separate yourself from whatever you want to do. I think it's dumb. I think you're really missing out on some, some great people because it's neat to talk to people that come up with a different view on life. I find that fascinating to talk to people like that. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's just kind of fun to follow those kinds of conversations and see where it goes. Cause again, it, it's, it's going to do one of two things. It's going to either just reinforce what you already believe, or it's going to cause you to rethink what you believe to make sure that you're actually believing something that's accurate, you know? Um, but, but, you know, I would tend to make the argument that if, and this is a big if, if we're going to say that there's something as something like systemic racism that's in our country and established, it's coming from the people that are claiming that there's systemic racism. And a lot of that you see by the laws that are being implemented, like, you know, like having the welfare state and the free handouts. And it's basically you're enabling people not to get out of their crappy situation, for lack of a better term. And, right. and basically it's basically saying because of your skin color, you can't – you are not as good as somebody else with this with this skin color. So thus – you need the handout or you need the help or you need, you know, to help to get out of the situation, which basically is give you free money, give you free stuff, which then keeps you there. And it's just this vicious cycle. So if we're, if we are going to talk about systemic like racism or whatever it is, that's it. It's not the people that are saying take responsibility and do something about it, you know? Exactly. And and that's, what's insulting about it. When you say we're going to put a quota system in, we're going to allow a certain amount of people rather than on merit, we're going to let people, some people are going to be disqualified by their skin color. That's racism. Mm-hmm. Put certain people in because of their skin color. That's racism. And what does it say to the minority groups that are given favored status? That you can't compete. That you're too dumb or whatever to, to compete with these other people. And that is insulting to me. Look at Ben Carson, the preeminent pediatric brain surgeon in the world. Okay, He applied himself. And, and you see, that's what when you look at the statistics on what makes for a successful family. You have strikes going against you if you're raised in a family where the mother and father aren't married and together. And that, and the statistics look pretty much the same at that point, whether you're white, black, Hispanic, or whatever. If you come up in a single parent home, your odds of succeeding in the world are vastly reduced because of that. God ordained the family, specifically a mother and a father, to raise children. When that system is broken, then the way God designed things doesn't work. And unfortunately, the people that pay the price for that are the children. Yeah, well, that, that's extremely true. And, and it's, you know, especially when you look out here in California, 
where you look in the places that are very low income, very, you know, like the ghettos, that sort of thing, like you, you see like one parent families all over the place and you hear just like stories of the father just abandoning the family or just comes around every now and then or whatever it is. And it's like, if, if, if we had that nuclear family that was together, that was supportive, like in all reality, even from a theological standpoint, like the relationship between the mother and the father is supposed to be an example of what the church is to Christ. It's like you take that example away, all of a sudden, all morals just go out the window because you no longer have that moral precedent anymore to exemplify our relationship with Christ. Well, you see illegitimacy rates, and the children's the child's not illegitimate. What we're talking about is children born outside of wedlock and typically right. raised by their mother. Um, if you, you look at people like Thomas Sewell and Walter Williams, who've done the history on, on what it used to be like, those rates were very low amongst black Americans, even back in the 30s. Now, that was a hard time in this country back in the 30s. When this stuff started to skyrocket was when the welfare system came in, and when also when we took God and prayer out of the school, 62, 63, through Supreme Court rulings, but specifically the Lyndon Baines Johnson of welfare, which targeted families, which says, Mothers, you will get paid money, but the father can't be in the house. Okay, so we started dividing and attacking that that the black family in this country, which is horrific. We're all God's, you know, made in His image. He doesn't love white people more than He does black people or Hispanics or anybody else. But He loves you when you come to Him. That becomes harder to do when you're caught in this vicious cycle you were just talking about. This poverty. You look at the places where there's lower standards of living. And you can look at the Democratic Party still. Their fingerprints are all over this stuff. The same party that, that fought a war to keep slavery intact. Mm-hmm. And then formed the Ku Klux Klan to terrorize black people and white people are trying to help them. And all these other things, they're still there. And the, I guess if you want to look at it from their, their point of view is the beauty of it now, in those days they knew who the enemy were. We knew who the enemy was. Now we don't. We, we actually pledge allegiance to the enemy. Now that's starting to change too, and this is concerning some people. That's why I think we're seeing this idea of reparations popping up again. Who doesn't like the idea of being given something for free, right? Mm-hmm. So there's there's more blacks and, and minority groups that are supportive and understanding that we all do better when society's open and productive and we're not under Marxist control or totalitarianism. But so now we're seeing the idea of reparations brought back up again, trying to reel people back in to vote Democrat in 2020. Everything's about the election. Yeah. And it, it, it's it's crazy how, again, ever since Trump was elected, how drastically everything has changed, both inside the church and outside the church. I mean, I, I mean, even just, again, out here in California, I know it's an extreme example, but this is like crazy Democrat country. Like, literally, there's homeless in the streets. I know they're, they're talking about there being like an outbreak of like diseases that they haven't seen since like the Middle Ages out here. Because because, uh, because we allow the homeless to sleep out on the streets, they have encampments. They're all they're all doing drugs. They're they're not able to be taken care of or put into facilities and get mental help or anything like that. And it's just like this is this is this is where the country's heading because this this is like the example of it all. And it's 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 nuts living out here. Like you draw you take the wrong turn. I mean it's 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 dangerous. So, so that is an example of actual systemic oppression. Mm-hmm. Because th- this, while it's not in your face, like this is what we're here to do, this is the results, and it's, it's part of an agenda. They know exactly what was going to happen with this stuff because we've got the years and years of looking at these 
failed systems that, like you said, keep people under the thumb of government. They're giving you just enough money to survive, paying you to do nothing. So they take away your self-worth, your integrity, by putting you on the dole. And they tell you that, you know, even if you try to rise up, well, there's no use doing that because the system is going to hold you down. White people are going to push you down. And in my experience, that's not the case, at least not systemically. That, you know, my white privilege is going out and, and working and seeking a job to support myself. And I think everybody that tries that, if you don't have a criminal record, if you're not hooked on drugs or selling drugs, unfortunately for ladies, if you, you're not having several children out of wedlock and guys going out fathering children, having a criminal record, if you can avoid these things, your outlook on life looks a lot better. And again, that doesn't matter what color you are. I see white kids doing the same, living in the same sort of conditions, and they were contributing the same sort of statistics. And that doesn't really matter at that point. Uh, if you if you're raising like a single parent home, not saying that that's that's a death sentence on you, but boy, it sure puts you behind. Yeah. Well, you know, like the the other side of oppression, I think too is you know, which is I think this is a good segue into it is dealing with like income inequality and 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 that whole thing where they're literally like pitching to people that the rich took your money and that's how they got rich, and so then they owe you. A job, and you know, it's funny. My my chapter on the book is income inequality, and it's like, how does that even mathematically make sense that the rich took your money to get like it? That just makes absolutely no sense. But but what's interesting though is that basically what they're saying is that you can't get ahead unless somebody gives you a job. And for me, I'm just I'm just sitting here thinking like, we live in a country where anybody could start a business, right? Like lit like literally, you may not enjoy it. But at the same time, like, you could go mow a lawn. You mm -hmm. could do a service. You could go be a janitor. Like, it, like you could you could offer to go clean something. Like, there's always something that you could do to better yourself. And But for whatever reason, people feel like they need the handout from the rich person who owes them something. And, you see, that's a zero-sum game again. Like, there's only a certain amount of, of pie. Mm -hmm. Where in this nation, you can make multiple pies. There's no limit, like you said. Donald Trump's not a billionaire because he took money away from me. So if that were the case, then if Donald Trump weren't in the world, maybe I'd be just a millionaire. You know, he spread his billions out. Well, that's not the case. So what we're talking about is people that are coveting what others have earned. So maybe people have superior ambition, a focus. Focus is big. A work ethic that sort of thing, a drive to go out there and better themselves, make more money, move up in the world. I hope money's not your overall goal in life because you're going to find out at the end of life that it was never what it should have been. Jesus and God's plan for you is better than any money. But what I'm saying is you can certainly live in a, in a decent economic condition if you simply apply yourself to it. And when somebody tells you, well, you can't get ahead, look at some of these uh, minority people who have gotten ahead, not just through sports, but through using their brains. But this, again, requires that you assimilate into our current system. You know, we were known as the melting pot. People came from all over the world and melted into the American culture. People came for the opportunity this nation presented. When, when our ancestors were coming over, at least mine, there was no welfare state. There was no safety net. You simply came here with an opportunity to make something of yourself based on your own wits and work ethic, maybe a skill you bring with you. And people worked and built up and, and, and became very successful that way. That was the American dream. Today, people covet something they haven't earned or want to be paid for something they claim happened to their great-great-great-grandfather by the ancestors that, that may actually have fought to free them. Uh, we The only thing we know for sure, again, in that situation, it was the Democratic Party. So if anybody owes anybody anything for past wrongs, it would be the Democratic Party. And they don't want to talk about that because this stuff's coming 
and funneled through politically the Democratic Party. Yeah. Well, the, the you know the other thing that I think that we we do need to be aware of as well is that to a certain degree, I feel like our education system is brainwashing kids from preschool oh, yeah. on. And, and, oh, yeah. and one, one of the one of the aspects, and this is one of the things that I that I talk about in in my chapter on income inequality, is they're reinforcing from a young age to be an employee. They're not yep. reinforcing to think for yourself. They're not they're not reinforcing to be an employer or start a business or be entrepreneurial. They're reinforcing for you to say yes, no, do what you're told, you know that sort of thing. Like if you're if you if you think outside the box, you go stand on the corner. <laughs> You know what I mean? And so to a certain yeah. to a certain degree it's like we're we're teaching kids not to be responsible and just be robots. So no wonder everybody just feels like they're entitled to a job and that's the end of it. Well, we used to be a nation of entrepreneurs. But like you said, they and, and I've been hitting the Democrats pretty hard. The Republicans are involved in this too. There's corruption yeah. on both sides and and a lot of those same money controls both sides. So one party actually tells you what they're going to do. The other party tells you they're going to do something once they get in power they do nothing. They don't reverse anything. They just sit on their hands. Until it goes back over the Democrats again, the Democrats keep moving to the left, and the Republicans then whine about it, and their rhetoric sounds good, so we give them another shot, and then they get in power and they do nothing once again. So that's the cycle we've been dealing with. So, But Lenin said, Vladimir Lenin, founder of the Soviet Union, said, you give me a child for four years, and I'll plant a seed that will never be uprooted. Well, Lenin was only asked for four years. You're talking about preschool, elementary education, through the high school years, so there's 12, 13 years right there. And then when you move into... Uh, graduates or uh, colleges and graduate schools there's even more levels of indoctrination by openly marxist professors well that's a hard thing to fight and and that's that's where we're at right now the education system they were smart enough to understand take control of the education system initially and then as time goes on your influence increases as the old people die off and more and more of your indoctrinated robots for the um i guess you call them drones for the uh, the revolution they just want to fit into a slot somewhere yeah, yeah. Now, now, what do you what do you think that that can or should be done to combat this? Because because I, I feel like to a certain degree, there we're getting more awareness, even more in the secular society than even within the church to a certain degree. Because you you have people like Ben Shapiro and even Joe Rogan and Dave Rubin and like all the guys in the intellectual dark web that are at least talking about some of this stuff even more than maybe within Christianity, but. How do how do we actually turn this ship around and fix it? That's that's the question, isn't it? So what we're doing right now is part of it. Again, making people aware, or at least making them aware of the possibilities. Maybe what I've been thinking and been taught all my life is needs to be questioned. So that's a good thing. I, I think really though, the struggle within the church right now is the defining point. It's going to be hard for us as Christians as a church to affect a society when we ourselves are being destroyed from within. So we need to really put our focus into two things. One, taking back the churches and exposing these people. And I think that's what we do, right? That's what you're doing. That's what we're doing, Sam and I, and, and other people that are – it's nice to see this movement now coalescing. Now there's finally some organization for pushback. We didn't see that not too long ago. You had individuals here and there. Now we're talking in more than one voice, and we're – like the book project. There, There's a great idea. I want to thank you for that publicly. I thank you for that in the email mm-hmm. that we put something together and we put it out there so people have something to reference and to read and to understand. So that's one thing. Um, th- but this also now requires that we disengage from the television shows we watch and the self-gratification entertainment that seems to be the goal of many lives, Christian and non-Christians, and say, you know what? 
what we're losing and we've lost because we've not been paying attention. Now I need to disengage from my, my own personal pursuits and work for changing these things and taking back what's been stolen from us and being stolen from my kids. We need to get on school boards. We need to start endorsing candidates. We maybe need to run for office in some instances. We need to do these things, take back our school. Stop Stop giving our money uh, to organizations that are actively fighting us. You know, if, if you, Intuit, I saw, I was at the gym last night and I saw part of the Democratic debates. Well, mm-hmm. Intuit sponsored that and Progressive Insurance. Progressive Insurance is this, that Progressive Liberal Insurance. That's what they do. I mean, that's, they take their name from their philosophy. Well, Intuit runs TurboTax, right? Did you know that? Yeah, yeah. Do Quicken Books and TurboTax. Well, I didn't know they did TurboTax. Well, I found out what they were. And I've been using TurboTax. I don't use TurboTax anymore. Mm-hmm. I don't Target anymore. Right. I don't go to Disney movies anymore because of the agenda they're pushing. You're saying, well, that's going to be kind of inconvenient. You're going, yeah, okay, that's fine. Because what I'm losing by supporting these people, I can't stomach my money going to these people. And they think right now that most of us will choose entertainment or whatever or convenience or better prices over our principles. And if, the, and if we do, those aren't principles. Those are values, aren't they? Mm-hmm. And we prize these other things more so that's another thing let's start withdrawing our money our business let's not do business with people that blaspheme the name of our lord that that go against our beliefs who openly promote evil abortion really i'm going to support a company that i know can i sit in a restaurant and support a company i know that part of my money is going to support planned parenthood we need to get on our knees and really start thinking about stuff like this yeah, well, you know, like e- even just with it within that idea, and I know this is going to be more of a broad, you know, point than some of the specifics that you were listing. But you know, when we're talking, you know, a lot of people have been complaining about the tariffs that President Trump has put on countries like China and Mexico and that sort of thing, and they're like, "Well, see, it's gonna, it's going to make everything more expensive and more, you know, this that." And, I, and I'm just sitting here thinking, I'm like, "But should we be buying USA in the first place? Like, if we were all buying USA in the first place, we'd have more jobs." The cost would go down because more people are buying and we wouldn't have this problem with China and Mexico and like, like literally that would solve it all. But for whatever, but everybody wants the easy route. And so they want to buy the 99 cent stuff from China. (laughs) Yeah. Everybody wants pain free. Well, in the case of a trade war, you're going to have to endure some short term pain for long term good. So Mm -hmm. that's the reason you have a trade war. It's just like having a regular war. Nobody wants to go off and fight and die or have family members killed in war. But if we didn't do that, then what you're going to do is that in the case of World War II, the Nazis will take over the world. So we had to expend some lives and put our lives on a line to to take that that evil out, out of the way. Mm-hmm. We had to terminate that evil. And it cost us short term. The men and women died in the you know all the, that conflict. But look at the dividends it's paid since then. So we have to look at these things. Yeah, short term, there's going to be a problem anytime there's conflict. But what's the long term goal? Do we want to continue to let China steal our our economic stuff or our intellectual stuff i should say and be a victimizing us in trade deals that maybe like the obama administration had signed with them it's really rotten for america these american haters will take us down any way they can through treaty hook or crook and we have to realize as, as president trump has there's some bad stuff that was signed off on and we need to write that so he's doing it is now not everything he's doing do i agree with but he's done a lot of things I agree with, and it's certainly a vast improvement over what we had the eight years prior. Yeah, no, I, I 100% agree. But, I, but I, you know, I, th- I think the other side of it, too, is when we, when we are talking about oppression, it, it, 
everything I feel like has flipped to where whatever whatever the PR and whatever's going out there, like you can almost just say, well, this is what's at, what's actually happening is the exact opposite. And what's interesting is like when you're looking at the landscape of the media and just like public perception in general is the actual people who are actually being systemically oppressed are people like you and I who are straight white Christians. Like you look at even like the social media companies, they'll literally kick you off if you if you say the wrong thing. You look like you look at businesses, businesses will no longer do like what was it like Disney and Netflix no longer want to do like film movies in in Atlanta, Georgia or Georgia because of the abortion bill. Like like literally that's actual oppression is silencing you for your for your political and religious beliefs. Not all the not all this other stuff that they're just making up on the fly. Well, you know, it used to be you could you could speak your opinion and people I, I disagree with that. Now they want you if you're you're speaking a conservative or Christian opinion, you're supposed to apologize, especially if you're an athlete or something. You're supposed to apologize for offering your opinion that's contrary to what the liberal narrative is. And and I'm saying again, even if I disagree with your opinion, you shouldn't have to apologize for having an opinion contrary to mine. How arrogant do I have to be and egotistical to think that I'm so much smarter than you? And you're so dumb by comparison. If you say something I don't like, you must apologize to me. That's horrific. Mm-hmm. That's not freedom. This country is founded on freedom and liberty. What they're pushing isn't freedom or liberty. It's bullying. It's it's outright attacks. Now, we're going to try to put economic pressure on Georgia because those people stood up and said that babies should not be murdered. So we're not going to allow in our state a, a certain segment of our population to be murdered arbitrarily just because somebody finds it inconvenient to bring them into the world. The precedent that sets is, okay, who else now is inconvenient? How about old people? How about handicapped people? I mean, this is what the Nazis did. They started wiping out the non-productive members of society. And then, of course, ultimately, how about you Christians? We don't like what you've got to say. Mm-hmm. It's happening in different parts of the world right now. If you're a Christian, we will kill you. And, and this is what man's always done. Groups of men, if you disagree with us in power, then we kill you. And it's not just been Christians. It's been all sorts of people all over the world. But still, that part of human nature remains, doesn't it? That Not that I'm doing anything to you personally. I'm not stealing from you. I'm not hitting you. I'm not taking your property or, or killing anybody. But because of what you believe different than me, I think you should die. Yeah. That's some things don't change, do they? No. Well, you know, and, th- and that's the thing. And that's the thing that I think that something that I feel like Christians could lead the way on to a certain degree is that is is tackling this issue of you know freedom of ideas, freedom of association, freedom of speech, and especially when it comes to people that disagree with us. Because I think I think the important thing is that we're having the conversation, like even like you and I, or you know me and whoever it is. The important thing is that we have the discussion, we have the debate, we discuss ideas, we let the ideas win. We don't try this fascist idea of we're going to shut you down and you're no longer a part of society if you disagree with us. I mean, right. you, I mean, you look at this, all this fiasco with the social media companies, and they're literally just like kicking people off, and it's like you're no longer worthy of being a part of society. Yeah, that's what they say. Yeah, it's 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 nuts. Like that to me, that's actual oppression. Like you you can no longer do business. They take away PayPal. They take away Visa. They take away your ability to speak. Like that's that's some serious oppression right there. It is, and this is this is the norm now. This is what we deal with. So, um, you know, we need to have conversations with people. At the root of all this is there's saved and there's unsaved, and we need to be. That's what I, I would be wanting to do is like, you know what, when all, when all this political stuff is, is gone and your life is over, 
you're going to stand before God. And it doesn't matter any of this other stuff that seems important right now. The question is, did you accept the blood of Jesus to atone for your sins or not? If you didn't, there's no hope for you. So I think sometimes that's, that's part of the, uh, what Satan's doing, too, is to get us all wound up on this stuff. So we're busy fighting all these other things. And we never get to that thing, that that witness that we're called to in the Great Commission to people. Yeah. And not only to get them saved, but once if people do come to Christ, but to make disciples of them, right? To mentor them, to lead by example, that sort of thing. And, and that's part of the problem. But like you were saying, yeah, the, the free speech issue. Um, you know what? We can disagree. That doesn't mean you hate me. It doesn't mean I hate you. It doesn't mean we have to kill each other and, and put snarky comments on, you know, and just walk away. We have to understand that on every issue, there's going to be somebody on the opposite side. And you know what? We can talk about it. And if I hold my view and you continue to hold your view, guess what? That's okay. You know? Yeah. What was it Reagan said? We can we can be disagree. We can disagree without being disagreeable. Mm-hmm. We completely lost that civility in society because of the galvanization process of people saying such things as you're systemically oppressed. You know, if you walk into a room. And you were to look at somebody, walk up to him and say, you see that guy over there at that table? He hates you. He's been talking bad about you. I heard him. He was making snide comments towards you. He's over there laughing about you. This guy over there may not have been doing anything but eating his hamburger. But that person you're talking to is going to look at that guy and go, they're going to think to themselves, I don't like that guy. Yeah. I hate that guy. I, I may go over and punch that guy. And you know what? That guy didn't even know you were over there. But that's the power of people talking to people and convincing them of things that aren't true. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're going with. They're, they're, they've convinced a lot of people that you who are sitting there eating your hamburger don't like them. And, of course, if you don't like me, my human response is, well, if he doesn't like me, I don't like you either. So you get this person stewing, and that's what they're doing with segments of society. They get these people stewing. And you and I are going through life, let's say, and but you don't like them. You're a racist because... Your, your skin color is white, and, and mine's different. Rather than look at the differences, why don't we talk to each other? And don't listen to that guy that just came over there and told you that guy over there that's eating his hamburger hates you. Mm-hmm. That's what we're doing, isn't it? That's what a lot of people are doing. Yeah. And if somebody hates me, like I told you earlier, nothing I can do about it. If you think I'm a jerk, I can't convince you otherwise. Well, I'm trying not to be that guy. I'm going to fail maybe sometimes because I can be a jerk. <laughs> but I don't want to be that guy, and I feel bad about it when I am. You know, But we all say things and do things at different times that we shouldn't, and, and that's my life. But my going forward, I'm going to try not to be as much of that guy. It's the best of my ability and the Lord working through me. But the fact of the matter remains, this idea of systemic oppression, um, the worst part of this is between the years. It's not like there, there's no law out there where it says if you're a certain skin color, you get the job or you don't. Um, now, if I come in and I got tattoos all over my face and body piercings and stuff like that and, a, and a, another person comes in in a suit and they look respectful and act that way and I come in you know dressed like a bum with all that stuff going on and then that person gets a job well they were oppressing me because of you know like let's use some common sense here right you know you're presenting yourself in society a certain way people have the right to say that's not basically what my business wants to be this person over here and also maybe this guy went to you know has a, a resume that I don't. Mm-hmm. The fact is you build your resume. Government's not responsible for your economic condition. You're responsible for your economic condition. It's not your neighbor. It's not a group of people that you consider on the opposite side. You are personally responsible, just as you're responsible for the Lord. You're responsible for your soul. Nobody else is. Yeah, you know, you know, and, and that's the thing, too. 
I I haven't I've heard a lot of people complain about systemic oppression, especially being out here in California. But when but when they're pushed on it, I I haven't I haven't actually heard anybody actually say how it would be impossible for them to get ahead. Mm-hmm. And and that and that's the inter- that's the interesting concept in all of this is that is that if you really wanted to, anybody could actually start a company or better mm-hmm. themselves. It may take a little bit of time. Like maybe may, maybe your problem is that you were never a good reader in school, so right. you need to practice reading more. And then maybe you could get that job that you weren't able to get because you weren't able to comprehend as well. You know, like there, there's all different sorts of solutions, but just because you are stunted in some way doesn't mean that you are systemically oppressed. It just means that you may have to work harder in order to make that happen. But there's no like limit when it comes to anybody about where you can get or where you can go or what you can accomplish. Because I mean, that that's the beauty of America. Other countries, you don't have this freedom. Mm-hmm. And that that's what I think a lot of people are missing is that like, I think it was like last year, my wife and I, we went to Europe and we went all over the place it was great exploring, but it, it still – it makes you appreciate America that much more seeing how these other countries are. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and the question to these people, I'm, I've been systemically oppressed. The question is, have you tried? I mean, what what have you done to actually pull yourself up and, and, and go out there and do it? Have you just given up without even a fight? Yeah. You actually have stories that say, well, um, you know, because of this, that, or the other. I mean, guess what? There's better qualified people than me when I apply for a job. If you really want to know how to improve yourself, if you go to that interview and you don't get the job, contact HR, the interviewer, and say, what could I do to improve myself? I mean, where, where was I? I'm not saying you have, I mean, you don't know who you're being compared to, but what would you recommend that I would do to make myself a better candidate in the future for a job like this? Mm-hmm. Asking these questions and showing that sort of a and, – and take that into consideration. Actually apply it. You know – that's how you move up. It's it's not like, well, woe is me. I went to an interview and I didn't get the job. I've been to that same thing before. I didn't feel sorry for myself. I said, I just got to do better next time. Okay. So what was my problem? You know, let's work on it if I find out what my problem was. Or if, you know, by comparison. Mm-hmm. So I, this idea that, you know, I played a lot of softball. And you could tell when you would play, come up against a team, your team had a reputation, you could tell when the other guys knew they were beat. Mm-hmm. In, in that moment when a team knows they're beaten, if that's even before the game starts, you can tell sometimes that they're already beaten before they take the field. They don't have a chance. Not because they can't physically compete with us, because mentally they've already decided they're not going to win this game. And guess what? You're not going to win that game. Yeah. Well, you know, like that, that but that, that's the thing too. It's like going along because I played a lot of basketball in high school and very competitive and that sort of thing. And I, and I had one coach in particular, I think it was my freshman year of high school. And he, and he, and he made that, that very point you were making, which is your, whether you win the game or you even have a chance to win the game has to do with your attitude the second that jump ball happens at the very beginning of the, of the game. Like, and, and that I've I've read a lot of like John Wooden when I was growing up and playing basketball and a lot of his the way that he would train his players and teach his players mental toughness and it was don't mm-hmm. get don't get emotional just be you know what you're supposed to do you better yourself you be mentally tough and I mean he won what like ten championships in however many years and went yeah. undefeated like four years in a row it was something like insane yeah. But it's but it's still this idea of like mental toughness and and that was one of the things that always stuck with me playing just playing basketball through high school was that 
was that my job was to be mentally tougher than my opponent. Because if I could do that, then I could outplay him. Yeah. Well, I, I was on a team one time, a tournament game, and the guys looked over at Cross and he said, oh, we can't beat those guys. And that made me mad. Mm-hmm. I said, so what are we out here for? We might as well just forfeit the game and go sit in the stands in. I mean, what are we even playing for? Yeah. Because my belief is we can beat anybody anytime. And, and that, the sad thing was we were a pretty successful team. And for somebody to say something like that made me mad. Mm-hmm. Uh, we go out there and play. And we play believing we can win, believing we're going to win. At the end of the game, somebody else is keeping score. They'll give us the final tally. My job in the moment is to play the game to the best of my ability, to focus on victory. And the same thing is in life. My job, okay, I'll have disappointments, but I'm going to keep moving forward. And here's another thing. If somebody disagrees with me, I don't get offended. Now, today's you say, well, that was offensive. Like, what do you mean it was offensive? Does somebody has a different viewpoint than you? That's offensive to you? Mm-hmm. It's a different mindset. I don't get offended. I understand people do. Yeah. And I try to talk to them. Like, what's going on in your head? Let me tell you where I come from. And maybe we can learn from each other. If we learn anything from each other, that puts me a little bit farther ahead and hopefully you too. But to say I'm offended and now you have a huff and, and you want to go stomping off, and it means you don't want to talk. Yeah. You know? And we've got, that's the sad thing, and that's what brings you to a point of a civil war in society when there's nothing else to talk about. Yeah. I'm intractable in my position, you're intractable in your position, and neither one of us are going to let those positions stand. So now, since I can't convince you, you must be destroyed. Yep. And that's that's kind of where we're at in society right now. That's not a Christian way of doing things from either side. Yeah, and un- unfortunately, and kind of as we're wrapping up too, but, you know, I, I was I was I was thinking as you were just saying that, like, that kind of mentality is happening in the church too, in, in the broad church, you know, mm-hmm. and, and it's, it's this idea that if you, if you're not going with the status quo, or you're not going with what the, the leadership says that you don't deserve a voice. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, that, and that happens in a lot of different ways. It's, it's a very similar tactic to what we're seeing in politics, but you know, it has to do with the conference circuit. It has to do with who's putting out the books. It has to do with who's being invited to preach at different churches. It, there, there's, there's a lot of this, this very similar tactics that's happening within the church. And it's fascinating, again, the parallels between what's happening within the church and what's happening outside the church. And again, like we were saying before, at a certain point, it's like, it can't just be coincidence that it's almost identical. <laughs> no, because the church stopped being influenced on, on the culture many years ago. Pietism set in where we just practice our faith at home. We don't really want to be out in society with it. Well, there can't be this static barrier between them. Either the church is affecting society or, or the society is invading the church. And that's exactly what's happened. So what you're talking about when you're talking, you're talking about books, deals, and, and who's going to be at what church. You're talking about fame and fortune. Mm-hmm. You're talking about serving mammon. And that's what these big ministries are doing. It's all about self. It's about your money. I mean, Joel Steen and those guys, that's a great example. I mean, obviously that guy's not a Christian. He's just in it to, to suck money out of people, the prosperity gospel. Yeah. There's other ministries that do the same thing. They don't say it in the same way, but that's exactly what it's about. If you and I doing what we're doing is hurting somebody's bottom line or taking away from their own glory, then we're, we're the enemy. We're trouble. And, and what they're afraid of is that our, our movement will grow. So, again, we have to be hit as hard and as fast as they can to try to stamp us out, discredit us, and, and take away our steam, so to speak, because they don't want their fame, fortune, in their ministry being hurt, and, and that's not to God's, God's glory. If you're doing any sort of ministry for other than God's glory, you're in it for the wrong reason. 
Yeah. You know, and, and, I, and I think, too, that, you know, people both when they're participating in the public dialogue or just like following as well. Right now, I feel like we're we're in the midst of a battle for where we are, at least when it comes to like the public church. Right. And the grand scheme of things. Right. We yes. are in a battle. It's not going to be easy. And like what we were just talking about, we have to be mentally tough and we have to realize they're they're going to come guns blazing ready to try to take us down however they can and the thing is that we just have to keep pressing forward because i feel like what we're doing is actually the right thing we're actually exposing truth we're actually exposing error we're dealing with these things properly but the thing that people have to remember is that it's going to be a long it's going to be a long fight it's 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 not like it's just going to be a short little battle and we're done it's it's going to be a long thing and there's going to be a lot of wounds at least when it comes to like uh, insults and trying to discredit people and attacking people and that sort of thing. Like we, we as Christians, we need to make sure that we're getting mentally tough as well. Well, you, you've endured it already. I mean, you, you've come under attacks different times. Um, and here you are, you're still swinging, you're still playing. Mm-hmm. And I think all of us that have, that have made stands, um, we, we felt the sting both outside the church and, and maybe more painfully from within people that claim to be Christians. I mean, that's where we typically run into the greatest amount of criticism are people that are claiming a Christian faith, which they don't understand that meaning of the word, so we're still going to try to reach them and get them to understand. Um, the hardest people to reach are people that are saved that, that think they're saved but aren't. Those are hard people to reach. Right. But uh, as far as the fight, I got nothing better to do in my life. So until I take my last breath, that's what I'm committed to do. I'm, I'm committed to doing what the Lord has put me here to do. And now I see it more clearly in my life now than I did earlier. But uh, – so yeah, I got nothing better to do. So I'm in it for the long time. Yeah. Long- now, yeah. Now, now when when somebody comes to you and let, let's say let's say you're talking to them and they're they are a social justice warrior, right? They they are going, you know, they're like, this is what we need to do. This is the mission of the church. This has to do with the gospel. How how do you take somebody like that and then you refocus the conversation back to the gospel and the actual issue like just strategically speaking how do, how do you maneuver that back to and bring it back to god's word and the gospel well i'll engage them in their, in their course for just a second i'll say so you know how does this look when if it's completely successful in your point of view what where does that go where, do, where does that take us and then i'll bounce a little bit of history like where does this stuff come from and then with, with those things said, and of course, you, you see how the conversation ebbs and flows. Then you're saying, you know, the, the more important issue, what would you say? I mean, biblically speaking, you know, Mark said that the world's divided into oppressed and oppressor. And Sam does actually in his chapter does a good job of showing you who actually is oppressed, which is Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. That God is who we're oppressing by the choices we make. But at, at the end of all that, um, there's only two types of people. Is it? But it's not oppressed and oppressor. It's the saved and the unsaved. So... What are we doing? Because what we're talking about right now is all temporary. It's all temporal. All this for my portion of it goes away when I die. What are we doing about the eternal? Are we so caught up in the moment that we don't look at the eternal part of it? And and the only thing we take out of this world is souls. The only thing of value in this world is not gold. It's not building. It's not empires we build. It's individuals. Individuals you'll either be with in heaven one day or you'll be without. And you try to frame it then like, Okay, now we've talked about the stuff that seems to really get our attention. Can we focus for a moment on the most important thing, the reason that Christ came? That every day people are dying, and they're going one of two places. That's that's it. They're just one of two places. And one day, you know, you go to a funeral, 
maybe that's the only time you really think about death. And that's why I think funerals are so important. It's they're for the living, not for the dead, to get that gospel message across to people. Because that may be the only time they're going to hear it from anybody is at a funeral. So, again, our conversation should always be in in realizing when we're talking to people that are social justice warriors or think they're systemically oppressed, they are oppressed by Satan. The Bible talks about it. They oppose themselves. Now, we don't have to put it necessarily like that to them. We have to understand that when we're dealing with them, that they're lost. How else would we expect them to act? So we need to bring the good news of the gospel. The bad news is we, you know, we're all sinners before God and death and hell. The good news of the gospel is you don't have to go that way, and and give them that to think about, and you know, and be compassionate. Tone is important when that conversation, body language, be engaged, you know, um, and then let the Holy Spirit do what He's going to do. The Holy Spirit's the one that draws. The Holy Spirit's the one that works. I can just give you the words. I don't save anybody. I don't convince anybody of anything. I give you information. The Holy Spirit has to take care of the rest of it. So I just got to do my job. So realize that you're not losing. Like that person walked away and didn't pay attention to me. I lost. That that was a loss for me. No, you did what you were supposed to do. That was a win. And who knows about the seed you planted in that person's mind that may take root tomorrow, next week, next year. In a moment of real trial, your words may come back to them, your passion, your commitment to them, and it may make a difference. And we may never know the good we've done. Not, not saying you go to heaven by works, but the good we've done to one day in heaven. Somebody comes up and says, hey, Jeff, you, you probably don't remember me, but you said this to me. We had a conversation. And three weeks later, I came to Christ. And I'm here now, Jeff, because of the words, because you had the courage to talk to me about that. And you cared enough to say these things to me. How good would you feel? Oh, yeah. That's awesome. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, and and that's and that's the thing, too, is just even, even look, you know, th- I, I heard I heard one guy. Uh, it was it was a speaker at some some place that I went to, and and he he was very analytical, a little too much when it comes to his gospel presentation and that sort of thing. But but he had, he but he had made the point that it take it takes it usually takes seven times for somebody to hear something before they actually act on it. So he's like, if you apply it to the gospel, he's like, you you just have to think if somebody didn't become a Christian that time, that that may have been number the first time they've heard the gospel. It could have been the third time. Maybe for that, maybe for that person, it's going to take five, six times to hear it, or maybe it's going to take nine or ten. You you don't know what it's going to be, um, but it's just it, it could just be the you know one of many that's going to take leading up to that point. So it's just an interesting way to think through that. Well, in the sales world, they tell you you have to go through like five no's before you get a yes. Mm-hmm. So you know, get out there and get through those no's quicker so you can get to the yes. Yeah, so, <laughs> that's it, what it, they say. I don't know if it's true or not, but. Uh, it's a good strategy to keep you moving forward and trying. And if that's what it takes to do it, then do it. Definitely, definitely. So, well, I really appreciate you sitting down and, you know, ha- having this conversation. It was, it was fun, you know, kind of going through all this. And I think it's important, too, that people understand the history of, you know, cultural Marxism and social justice and all that kind of stuff. And so that's one of the reasons why I'm, I'm really appreciative that you're, you know, a part of the book project, too. So definitely thanks for being part of all this. Well, I can't wait to read the book myself. I mean, I've read my chapter and I've read Sam's chapter. Um, but yeah, that's there, there's going to be a lot. No one, the speakers that you've got, or the writers, I should say, that you've got in there, you, you really got some top-notch people there. And it, it really seems like everybody got the chapter they should have got. So that's that's kind of amazing. So you see the work of God's hand in this. Um, we were destined to do this. God made it that way. And I'm just uh, thankful and honored to be a part of it. Yeah, definitely. Well, again, I'm really thankful you're part of it. It's funny. Like every, I feel like the feedback that I've gotten from all the authors is that they got the chapter that they wanted. So, <laughs> so it, it, 
it, it, it all worked out. So, um, and then for ever, for everybody, if they want to follow what you're, uh, what you're doing, what you're writing, that sort of thing, how can they, uh, you know, either keep in touch or keep up on any articles or podcasts or anything like that? Okay. So the shiny light ministries.com is, is where Sam and I post podcasts and put our articles. In fact, I had an article just come out today. Um, why the Democrat, uh, how do I put that? Why the Democrat delusion confusion. So it's dealing with, you know, why does this thing keep dragging on? So uh, the shinelightministries.com, and of course you're gracious enough to, to show some of our stuff there on gatekeepers. So, um, we have that presence there. Um, just those are the best two spots, I would say. Uh, Capitol Hill Outsider sometimes runs some of our stuff. Um, but if you want to see everything we do, the shinelightministries.com would be your, your best bet. Okay, perfect. Yeah. Definitely. Articles, yeah. Perfect, yeah. And then also, you know, for everybody as well, you know, you guys can go to socialinjusticebook.com. Use the code Patrick. You get a free audiobook version of the book. And we're having uh, each author actually read their own chapter so you're hearing their words and their own tone and voice and inflection and all that kind of stuff so uh make sure make sure you use that code to, to get that audiobook as well that was a great idea i've got to say that was that was a spark of genius not to just have it read but have each author read their chapters so yeah. yeah i think that's really going to be interesting yeah yeah definitely definitely so well again thanks so much for coming on we'll have to do it again sometime you know there's i feel like yeah. there's there's always something to talk about so <laughs> better believe there is yeah and there's lots we could have spent more hours than what we've even done right now so yeah we can dig into it and after the book gets out or whatever even closer i'm always going to be available to you so if you need somebody to talk to here i am definitely sounds good well thanks so much really appreciate it HIV is still an issue in Montgomery County. The more open we're able to talk about HIV, we treat it like any other health prevention. PREP stands for pre-exposure prophylaxis. People who are not HIV positive who may be at high risk for contracting the disease. This is a good choice for you. It's just a way for you to sort of take control and say, I'm going to do this to protect myself. Do it for them. Do it for you, Montgomery County. Learn more about PREP, the HIV prevention medication. Visit doitforyoumc.org. You can live a long, healthy life if you're HIV positive. With the current treatments, we can get patients down to being undetectable. The array of options is so much greater today. U equals U. Undetectable equals untransmittable. If someone who's HIV positive, they're taking their medication, they're undetectable, they're not able to pass HIV to their partners. Do it for you, Montgomery County. Your HIV treatment is their prevention. Get more information at doitforyoumc.org.